Dear Heavenly Father, a beautiful morning and a, uh, a room sufficient for our purpose and a, a group of people gathered, Father, of like mind and heart to study your word. Father, that is a uh, perfect opportunity for you to speak to us this morning. Everything, Father, seems to be set up just so so that as we uh, come attentively with the word open before us, we might know your will. Father, I pray that nothing would intervene in our hearts and minds or in this moment to counteract that purpose that you have set, that we would know your word because we would be listening, we would be open to the message, Father, that as Paul wrote to the Colossae church so many centuries ago, Father, we could still see it as written to us today, for you had us in mind even as you had Paul pen these words, and we know that and we trust in that. And so, Father, I ask that we would sit attentively and, and uh, expectantly, just as those in that small church did so long ago, to hear you speak through Paul. And we praise you, Father, for the chance to study, and thank you, Lord, that we are here today and ask that all that we might take out of the study would uh, give us energy and desire and motive to uh, honor you and glory, give glory to you in our lives. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles, as I hope you have one, to... Uh, Colossians. I'm going to reread chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, just to set us back where we were. And then I'll give, you know, rather than a long recap, I'm just going to dive into these verses because they really provide us that context by themselves. Chapter 1, verse 20. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So we had started, I think last week, as I told you then, there was two sections to Paul's uh, prayer here is at the middle part of chapter 1. First, he started talking about the person of Christ, because as a church, if you're not sure on who Christ is, you're ripe for a false teacher to come in and move you off center. We talked through all that. Then he transitions to the work of Christ, because there are false faiths that acknowledge Christ seemingly as you and I would, as God, as from heaven, as a, a prophet, as someone who brought God's word, etc., etc., etc. What they don't acknowledge, however, is the work, the sufficient work on the cross, so they start to turn a theology into Christ plus something. And by saying Christ plus something, they preach a new gospel, a different gospel, one that cannot save. So the false teaching in Colossae, as we sort of read back out of the text, out of what Paul said, we can read into what was being taught in Colossae. Partly must have been teaching that diminished Christ in some sense. He was not as preeminent as he should be in their minds. Secondly, by diminishing him, now I open opportunity to put something up next to him. So it became a teaching of Christ plus something to be saved. That was the false gospel that, that, that seems to be behind a lot of what Paul is writing here. So now we're looking at the work of Christ. And in the verses I just read, he talks about uh, the, the work as Christ did it on the cross as the saving work of creation. A couple of points I'll make in passing. There, the saving work of Christ didn't just save you and I. In other words, it didn't just save people. It saved the creation, he said, in the verses we just read. In verse 20, whether things on earth or things in heaven. There's a broad scope here to his saving power. Paul puts it this way in another letter, in Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 20. He says, for the creation was subjected to futility, 
not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. It is not just that you and I were born into sin. When Adam sinned, he put also the world in bondage, the whole creation. How did he do that? By the curses that God pronounced in response to Adam's sin. If you go back and read chapter 3 of Genesis, one of the misconceptions that's in the church sometimes, not everywhere fortunately, is that God cursed man or that he cursed woman, which he did neither. He cursed the ground and he cursed the enemy. Because a curse, in biblical terms, is forever damned. The word cursed in, creation, in, in, in biblical terms means once forever damned. No hope for redemption. It's a pronouncement from God that has no uh, way to be withdrawn. So to be cursed is to be forever condemned to hell. There's no backing out of that. So he never cursed man. He never cursed woman. He did curse the creation and the enemy. Well, we know what happens to the enemy. If you've read ahead and you know how the book ends... You know what happens to the enemy. But what happens to the creation? Well, as, God, as, as Paul alludes to here in Colossians as well as in Romans, and as the Bible specifically tells us in Revelation chapter 21, this world eventually does go away. It is eventually burned by fire, which is a kind of comparable picture to hell. To be replaced, obviously, a new dwelling place put in its place. But it is to be destroyed because of the corruption that sin brought upon it. So God will do that work by virtue of the saving work of Christ on the cross. For the reasons that Christ, uh, Paul mentions in Romans 8.21, for the glory of the children of God. You see, where there are no children saved, there'd be no need for a domain, for a place to inhabit. So the fact that God is going to replace this world is a function of the need for, a, for somewhere to put his children. So he has to provide a corrupt-free environment for his corrupt-free children that he is producing by virtue of Christ's work on the cross. So there's a larger plan here beyond just the saving of you and I that's underway. Having given him preeminence, he now concludes to say, you know, he is also the one who's doing the work of salvation. There is nothing, and here's the summation point, there is nothing else you can do to prompt or ensure or hold on to your salvation. Nothing. It, you, there was absolutely nothing that any individual in the body of Christ does to prompt, hold on to, ensure, enhance, make better your salvation. It's done once for all on the cross. It's over. It is a finished work. That's the message of the gospel. Paul wants to bring that point out so strongly, and we're going to look at some more verses now as he begins to teach that, because he's about to make a very interesting point, one that I think we in the church can forget if we're not careful. You are to continue in your salvation the way you received your salvation. What was good enough to start you is good enough to finish you. And often what we do is we take what was started and then we begin to add to it along the way, believing that somehow we have to enhance what was given to us originally by grace. Paul, as you may have noticed in the verses I've already read, also said something very interesting about our state entering into salvation. We start as an enemy of God. All men and women are born into sin because the nature we inherit from Adam is a sinful nature. That puts us immediately upon our first breath as enemies of God. Paul puts it this way to the Ephesians. Remember, sort of a sister church of Colossae and the same general region. He wrote in the letter of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, 
according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, too, we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us with, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. So when we say we've received grace, what that word technically means is, before you deserved it and before you knew it, God was already making you a child of God. That is the definition of grace. You were oblivious. In fact, you were predisposed against him. He stepped into your life. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he regenerated you and brought you into the family of God before you even knew that was something you wanted. Before you could have appreciated it intellectually because you were dead. The analogy he uses as he brings it to baptism is you were dead and you were made alive. No more could a true, live, a, a true physical corpse bring itself back to life than we could do spiritually. It takes an outside actor to bring that life into the body. And that's exactly what happened to us in a spiritual sense. I received a letter recently from a listener in New Zealand who wrote with a question about an experience they were having in their own life that illustrates the same concept in some sense. She had a 13-year-old daughter with a, who was uh, witnessing to a schoolmate in New Zealand who's an unbeliever. And this is what she wrote. She said, My 13-year-old daughter, who was just baptized, came home from school the other day and she told me she had a conversation with her friend which went something like this. Do you know that you hate God? I don't hate God. Well, actually, the Bible says that if you are not with him, you hate him, even if you don't personally feel like you do. What a bold conversation for a 13-year-old. And, and, and I know it's, it may come off at first thought a little harsh, and, and I sure that's the unvarnished truth of a new believer bringing what they know to be true, right? And we can all sympathize with that to some degree. But I think sometimes we forget the truth of that statement. I mean, we forget it in the sense that we want to overlook the reality of who we were before Christ, and likewise, the reality of how God sees the unbeliever. He, he sees the unbeliever as an enemy. Now, that's the mag, that, that magnifies in our own hearts the meaning of grace, that he would overlook that fact and reach out to the unbeliever, though the unbeliever is an enemy in, in spiritual terms. It's a, it, you know, if you remember Christ's own words, right? Anyone loves their friends. True love is that you would love your enemy. And why? Because your Father in heaven has done so with you. Be holy as your Father is holy. It's in that sense that he has overlooked our predisposed nature against him. So it seems to me, as we start to go back into Colossians now, that what Paul was concerned about, in, in part, and you'll see it play out more in chapter 2, is that this false teaching in Colossae must have included some kind of teaching that said your own personal achievement, and particularly, probably, your own ability to obtain some special knowledge, was a part of obtaining or maintaining your salvation. That seems to be integral into the teaching that was going on in that church. So, you are a new believer in Colossae and somebody comes alongside you at some point and says, that's a good start, but you're not done yet. What do you mean I'm not done yet? I thought I was you know, pleasing to God by faith. No, well, that's true, but unless you do this or until I teach you this and you know this, whatever it is, you still have something to do. You're still at risk, in other words. And that was apparently catching the attention of the church. It was compelling enough that people were falling prey to it. Paul then says in verse 23, the assurance that you know you're in faith and therefore can be secure in that knowledge is only true for someone who holds to the true gospel. It's, a, it's a sort of a condition 
in that I don't know who's listening to my letter, as Paul would write it. I don't know who's going to hear it. So I don't know if there's someone in this church who may hear this letter and not be a believer. And for that person, I just want you to be aware that my promises out of Scripture that you can be assured of your salvation only are true for you if you've held to the true gospel. If you are listening to a false gospel and have believed in a false gospel, well, then all bets are off. I can't make any claim about your position before God under those base, on that basis. Another way to put it is close doesn't count. It's not horseshoes, right? Close does not count when it comes to the gospel. There is nothing more dangerous than something close to the truth that is not, in fact, the gospel. That's what he's worried about. Now, you're listening to that and you're saying, well, are you saying that at some point you can move away later and then lose your salvation? No, it's not a matter of what happens to the believer. He's saying, if you have not held to the true gospel, you have no right to share in the promises I'm giving out here to the church. It's a way of differentiating the two groups up front as he begins to teach. Not to say anything about someone who has already believed the truth and now is in some way in jeopardy going forward. That's not his point at all. Paul's making this dramatic turn, I think, to emphasize the seriousness of a church tolerating false teachers who present a false gospel. I haven't really talked about that much here. and We share in the benefit of a church that does not tolerate false teaching. To my experience and to my knowledge, they're very careful about who teaches. And I saw that in my own experience as I offered, an oppor- you know, offered my willingness to teach, the church was very careful about that before they opened the door to do that. They, they got to know me. They got to know how I teach. They sat down and talked to me at length. They talked to people I had taught before. They talked to pastors in churches where I had taught before. All of that before they gave me a chance to teach. And you know that's not going above and beyond? That's the minimum. What's shocking is how few churches are willing to do the minimum. But that's the scriptural expectation on leadership in any church that they guard the flock that they prepare teaching that is consistent with Scripture, whether it comes out of the mouth of the pastor or on staff or a volunteer. And it, you know, a church like Colossae comes about because, they don't do, because of a church leadership not doing their job in that respect. False teaching leads people astray. It's not a neutral thing. It has a negative effect. It becomes a stumbling block. To the true believer, it leads them astray in ways that cause them you know, concerns unnecessarily. That, that stunt their development and maturity, that leave them wondering about things they shouldn't wonder about or worried about things they don't need to be worried about. But to the unbeliever who comes into that church for whatever reason and falls prey to the false teaching, it's a stumbling block. What a stumbling block literally means in the Greek or in the Hebrew is this concept of a path that is diverted, where the normal path should have been like this. You put a stumbling block in somebody's way, not in the sense of stumble to fall like you and I think of stumbling, but stumble in the sense of diversion. The effect of a stumbling block in in a teaching context is the person starts on a new direction once they hit that stumbling block. This is the mechanism by which many never find the truth. It's, It's still accounted to the fault of this person or this teaching. They're still accountable for their, for being a stumbling block, for being the one through whom somebody never found the truth. All right, that's not to say that God couldn't have made it happen. I, I'm not speaking about sovereignty issues. I'm simply talking about the meaning of a stumbling block, and that is that thing that diverts you from the path toward truth. That's the effect of some of this teaching. Paul's concern is that this church, probably more than anything, has abandoned its responsibility to protect the flock. Paul made a passing reference to himself as the minister of the gospel. Remember that last verse I read? He says, this gospel to which I, Paul, am a minister. The word minister there, in the Greek, diakonos, it's servant, literally translated. He's a servant of the gospel. 
it seems odd in a way that he's just now turned again to talk about himself. He started presenting some background on himself to try to build his credibility. If you remember, this is a church that's never met him. So he has concern over whether they will listen to him rather than to the false teachers. Now he seems to have turned back to himself again. And he's doing this because of what he's going to go do next. Let me just ask you an upfront question. Do you worry about what somebody thinks of you when you're prepared to compliment them? Not usually. Do you care what they think about you when you're prepared to criticize them? Absolutely. What you think of me has a lot to do with how you'll receive my criticism. So if I were to show up late to this classroom, and then following that somebody else were to show up late, and I were to turn to them and admonish them for not being on time, my criticism is hollow. And if they had known I showed up late too, they wouldn't receive that criticism with any respect whatsoever. If I compliment them about how they look, how they dress or whatever, they won't care anything about how I look or dress. You see my point? The criticism is always filtered through a lens of credibility. And that's not wrong. It's just, it's natural. Paul now has to be concerned that as he's about to lash into the church a little bit, I mean, really, how do you correct a problem with anybody or anything without pointing it out? Very hard to avoid criticism if you know somebody needs correction. It's a part of the process. But inherent in that process is establishing some credibility so that you will hear it. One of the reasons, just as an aside to kind of point out, to prove the point, one of the reasons I enjoy teaching verse by verse is that it removes, at least partly, one potential source of criticism or doubt that can be in the minds of the audience with respect to my motives. You know, if you've ever been in a church where the pastor says, today we're going to talk about tithing. What instantly happens in the minds of many is they kind of shut down in the moment and say, okay, I see where he's going. Needs that new building again. Okay, forget it. Tuning out, right? You don't receive the message, biblical though it may be, because your, in, your insides are telling you he's got a false motive. He's just trying to get money out of me. He's not truly interested in my welfare. He's not truly interested in teaching me God's word. He just has an ulterior motive. So click, I'm off. If, on the other hand, I'm teaching verse by verse, and I start in verse 1 and I end in verse whatever, and somewhere along the way I hit tithing, well, I've kind of taken away that accusation, haven't I? I mean, you can still think I have a false motive, but you're hard-pressed to prove it because, frankly, I'm just teaching what's there. And it's self-evidently the case that I'm just moving through Scripture linearly. It's no longer the simple fact that this man picked something this weekend so that he can pick on me or make some point. He's just, he's just taking what's in the book. You, know, you may not receive it anyway, for other reasons, but you can't say it was because the person had a motive to bring it up. Verse by verse, to my mind, tends to take that away and say, we're just teaching what God wrote. Paul, I think, is trying to prepare them for some criticism by establishing his own motives and his motives to be pure and honest and good-intentioned. And with those motives having been explained, maybe they'll listen more to the teaching he's about to give them in chapter 2. Look at what he says about himself in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory? We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, 
striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. By the way, all of that was one sentence in the Greek again. Paul is prone to that, but the English, we fortunately, in our English, it breaks up a little. All right, the whole point, as I just introduced of this sentence, is to cr- communicate Paul's credibility. Look at it, and we're just going to break it down briefly. And maybe even more than his credibility, maybe I should say his motives. It's his motives here. All right, so look at what he says. First he says, I do not take a privileged place in the body of Christ. This is consistent with what he ended with in verse 23 when he called himself a servant. He said, look, yeah, I'm an apostle. I mean, I'm not going to deny I'm an apostle, but I'm not coming to you with a privileged position in the body, looking down from on high, do as I say. Now, he has a right to do that, but he's not resting in that. Look what he is resting in. He says, I'm doing my part to suffer for Christ. And then he ends with something that has made this one of the most, and some actually have said the most controversial verse, certainly in the letter, maybe in all of Paul's writing, because of how it's been misused, because of how it's been misinterpreted. He ends it by saying, I'm doing my part in the context of the body of Christ, on behalf of of the body, he says, which is the church, to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Can you see how that could be misused? Just on its face, it leaves us with a question. The Catholic Church, for example, has taken this verse to mean in their minds that it is the case that a Christian must not only believe in Christ, but then must do good works, particularly penitent works, works of self-sacrifice, of denying of self. This is where you get some of the, 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 the most bizarre kinds of thinking that says you, you beat yourself with a whip. You know, It's this idea that I am to not only deny myself, but even punish myself to accomplish what Paul is teaching here, to fill up the afflictions of Christ. It's a sense of works on top of grace. Where, what is he actually saying here? Paul says the body of Christ is appointed to suffer. He says it in passing, kind of implies it here. He says it elsewhere as well. That suffering to the body of Christ began when Christ himself suffered on the cross. So in its original present form, it suffered. You and I are the body of our Lord now in His absence. We continue His suffering. Another way you can look at this is the way He addressed, Christ addressed Paul Himself on the road to Damascus. In Acts chapter 9, verse 4, after He appears to Paul, as at the time, Saul, and Saul fell to the ground, what did He hear? He heard Christ saying in a loud voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Me? He was referring, of course, to Saul's persecution of the church. And he says, you're persecuting me. That's not euphemistic. It's literal. We're the body of Christ. So as the body of Christ, when we are being persecuted, when we are suffering, Christ's own body, if you will, his experience of suffering continues through us. Now, what is the meaning of that? It is not to suggest that all this additional suffering is the atonement. That was done on the cross. His physical death was the atonement. But it is God's purpose that there continue to be suffering in the body of Christ so that we may identify with the one whom we are in. We are in Christ and in being in Him, we share in His inheritance. We also share in His suffering. We are experiencing life in some respects as He Himself experienced it. That is God's purpose. It is not to say that that purpose is to obtain salvation. That's nothing in the text to say that. And in fact, the the entirety of Scripture argues against that. But it doesn't deny the fact that there is a purpose, there is a meaning in God establishing for the church experiences 
that allow us to share in what His own Son did on the cross. So He's not speaking here of, of filling up the afflictions that are lacking in Christ's body for the sake of salvation. That's the added part that's not in the Scripture. It's true, though, that He is continuing to fill up afflictions in the body of Christ until He is complete in that sense, until the appointed suffering for the body of Christ has reached its end, its completed end, its established, pre-established end. Another way to look at it is there's only so many people who are going to be saved when it's all said and done. I mean, that's an obvious statement. When that last person, as God sees it, is saved, his plan for the church age is done by definition. He knows who that person is. He knows what day it will be. We don't. Similarly, there is so much suffering to be experienced in the age of the church, and once that suffering is, quote, filled up, the age of the church has met its purpose. It's in that sense that he says, Paul is saying, I'm doing my part. I'm not sitting on high in an ivory tower telling you guys what to do. I'm suffering with you. I'm in jail, as a matter of fact, while I write this letter. And by the way, I doubt the false teachers were doing the same in, in Paul's day. I seriously doubt the false teachers were taking the persecution that Paul was so willing to take. So he's beginning to distinguish himself there as well. Then, secondly, Paul says he was to preach the mysteries of God's word. Paul was granted the privilege of revealing certain mysteries to the church. The word mystery, you've seen this a lot in Scripture. If you study many of Paul's letters, he uses this word commonly. A mystery in biblical terms is different than how you and I might use it today. Watch a mystery show. The mystery is you know, who done it or how did something happen? We don't understand the circumstances. In biblical terms, a mystery is any truth that was revealed in the Old Testament, but its meaning was hidden until some later date. It's like a puzzle that's been hidden in the pages and you don't know it until God's ready to reveal it. The mystery in this case is the mystery that God intended to save Gentiles. By His grace, there would be a mass acceptance of God among the Gentiles. That was a complete mystery. Now, you and I can go back into Scripture now and we can see evidence of that written all over the Old Testament. The most obvious one is when, Paul, or when God turns to Abraham and says, through you, many nations will be blessed. It's a direct reference to the fact that by his seed, ultimately Abraham's seed is Christ. Through that seed, he would bless the world, many nations, not just the nation of Israel. But as simple as it sounds to us now, as easy as we can see it off the pages now, it took God revealing that to Paul specifically. Paul then teaching it through the letters we have now, Galatians specifically, Romans. Those two letters contain that fact for us. And Paul calls it a mystery. He said it's a mystery that existed in the Old Testament, but we just didn't understand it until God was ready to reveal it. Now he's ready to reveal it. And I'm here as an apostle, God's messenger, to bring that truth to you. And now he says to the Colossae church, you are, holder, you are a share taker in this miracle, in this mystery. You are the Gentiles being brought into the church. So what's his motive here? His motive is that he is there to help explain these mysteries and coach them on them because it's through these very mysteries that they've been brought into the family of God. You know, he's asking in an oblique way here for some credit. If I'm a person you have to be worried about, if I'm a person who's teaching you don't trust, well, remember why you even have the opportunity to be included into the gospel to begin with. It's because God planted this mystery and then used me to explain it so that he could save people just like you. I could hardly be indicted for my motives when you consider that. Finally, then he shifts in verse 28 to say that with that responsibility comes the necessity of preparing man to stand before Christ. 
I don't know how many of you aspire to leadership in any context, in any sense, within a church. But it is a worthy work, as Paul explains it in his letter to Timothy. You know, if any man aspires to leadership, it is, a, it is a worthy thing. It is a desirable thing, a commendable thing. But with it comes one responsibility no one likes. And I think, in fact, one of the reasons why churches today find themselves often weakened from poor teaching is because they, many people will not take on this responsibility because they do not like it. And that responsibility is to prepare men to stand before Christ. Well, it's very much like a parental role. I cannot prepare my children to stand in the world as adults and be a proper person in that respect unless I am willing to correct them along the way. It's not just about educating. It's not just about coaching and teaching. The flip side of that is when they're not doing the right thing, I need to correct. It doesn't work any differently in the body of Christ. I know we'd like to think it does, but it doesn't. Among adults, it does not. If I, am to stand, if I am to do what God may have called me to do, if I were to be a leader in a church or a minister of the gospel, the necessity of that role is teaching and encouraging coupled with correction and exhortation, which means in a variety of ways, either corporately or individually, letting somebody know they're not doing the right thing and explaining out of Scripture why that's true, helping them understand what they should be doing. But you know, ultimately, it's a criticism. At some point, it's a critique. And it's a biblical one if it's done well. We don't like that. Well, you know, I think the benefit of a small group, particularly a, a small group study like this that meets continually and you have a chance to get to know people over time, its benefits come by encouragement and teaching, yes, but also through an opportunity to get to know someone well enough that you can see their faults. And they can see yours. And in a loving way, there's an opportunity to have honest discussion about this may not be the best thing for you and that may not be something you should do or have you thought about this, you know. And take it through the Word so that there's an understanding of where that truth is based, but not letting the mistakes sort of stay there. It's a delicate thing, and you have to gauge when and how, but, but it's an obligation of people who would aspire to leadership positions in ministry to be willing to take that on. And you know what it means, of course. You can't control their response. But it doesn't take away the obligation to do it. Now, if you're not doing it in a loving way, if you're not being biblical in your approach, I mean, there's, there's ways you can do it wrong, to be sure. You criticize someone in front of a group and it's far less well-received. You criticize someone and you don't know them well. Again, it's back to the earlier point I made. You have no credibility with them. They're not likely to receive it. So you've got to get to know someone. You have to invest in them personally. You have to be concerned in a genuine way for them, and they have to see that. But just not doing it ever, I don't see that as a biblical option in light of what we're called to do. Help men prepare to face Christ on Judgment Day, in other words. And that's why Paul's going to so much effort to say, you know, I'm laboring on your behalf. I, I want you to be brought up in the, in the faith in the right way. He, he's trying to establish his loving purpose. All of that has to be there. And then with that, you now have tremendous opportunity in another person's life. You've, in, you've put yourself in a position where maybe you're the only one who can correct somebody in some cases, right? You, you may be the only one they would listen to. And to not use that opportunity in godly ways according to the Spirit's leading is to shirk back from a responsibility God has given us you know, in the body to correct one another lovingly. We don't do that a lot, and I know why, and I'm probably just as much at fault as anyone in that. You know, we all understand the human emotion around it, but it's supposed to be different in the church. Where he's going now is, he's going to expand it a little deeper now. He's, he's going to go one step further. He really starts to hit them a little hard. Look at what he says in verse 1 through 5 to set this up. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for those who are at Laodicea, 
and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Just listen to how he says that. He says, I struggle with you, or over you rather, over you, along with those in Laodicea. That was the closest church in proximity to Colossae. Laodicea and Colossae were, were very few miles apart. Interesting, if you know the letters to the uh, churches in Revelation, Laodicea being the last of the seven, it's the only church where nothing good is said about it in the seven letters. It's the church, it's the church that is apostate. You know, by its own description, it's basically a church of unbelievers by the time the letter is written uh, in, the, in the book of Revelation. So it looks like a church. I mean, it's got a building and whatever, maybe a home, however it's meeting. It's got people, but that's not a church if the Holy Spirit is not indwelling them. They're just unbelievers pretending to be Christian. That's where the church lies at the point where Christ calls it out in the book of Revelation. Many believe, and I agree with this belief, that the seven letters of the churches also are intended to represent seven ages of the church itself over its existence, from the age where it was established in Christ's day to the seventh church being a picture of what the church will look like in the last days before Christ's return. It's largely an apostate church. That's what Paul refers to when he talks to the Thessalonians and he says, before the Antichrist can appear, there must first be what? The great falling away. The apostasia in Greek. It is the apostate church that defines the last days. A church so weakened in my mind, in my personal view, by false teaching, by a lack of accountability and a lack of good leadership, that it has become basically a community club, the local YMCA replacement. And so it's just the world gathered underneath the banner of the church. But in reality, very little of the church is actually present. And that's the weak, false church of the last times. Laodicea apparently is suffering like Colossae is under this same kind of false teaching because Paul refers to how he labors for them like he does Laodicea and all those in that region. It stands to reason that what eventually came... This is written about 40 years before the letter that was written by John in Revelation. So it stands to reason that whatever he said here didn't have its desired effect, at least not in Laodicea, because they apparently continued south. And in verse 2, Paul explains his purpose in writing the letter. So if you wanted a purpose statement out of the letter, it's in verse 2 of chapter 2. It's not so clear in the version I read. The NASB doesn't, it translates it well, but it doesn't really capture its feeling as well. NIV actually captures the feeling better here. Here's what the NIV says. My purpose is that, I'm, that they, meaning the, the church body, may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. So his purpose is to encourage them. Then he says, so that they may have a complete understanding in order that they may know Christ. I'm going to encourage you so that you would have an understanding that is truthful and by that understanding that is truthful, you may know Christ. And I think what he means by know here is on the one hand, know meaning maturing in your knowledge, but I think even more fundamentally, he means it in the sense of being saved. It's a, it's, a, it's a comment here that says, I'm laboring for you as a church, like I did others in your region, to encourage you to know what's true so that you would be a believer. So that your, your faith would be secure in the true gospel, not in some false gospel. That's his purpose in writing this letter. So, 
Up front, we know exactly where he's going in the rest of this letter. Paul then gets to the point. Verse 4. I say this so that no one will delude you with a persuasive argument, which is a fundamental fact of life. False teaching can often be very persuasive. There's a, um, a misconception sometimes, in my experience, within the church that says, I'll know false teaching when I see it. Uh, a sort of bravado, uh, a sense of, of pride maybe, that we live with if we're not careful, that says, you know, I, I can tell good from bad. Uh, you know, like as if it were in the Western movies where the bad guy wears a black hat and the good guy always wears a good hat, and it's just so obvious I'll see it coming. Forgetting that Scripture itself teaches us that the enemy comes as an angel of light, which means that when the enemy's at work, sometimes it looks exactly like an angel God sent. You know, it's an angel of light. Looks good, looks appealing, looks perfectly consistent with Scripture. Why? Because we don't know Scripture, probably. Or maybe because of a weakness in our own life or because of something else that's going on at the time to cloud our judgment. But whatever's going on, don't assume that you will know truth from, from falsehood just instinctively. Persuasive arguments come from the false teachers as much as they do from the real teachers. Judaizers in the day of Paul, Mormons today, Gnostics in the day of Paul, maybe Jehovah's Witnesses in the day of today. They come in different forms, but they're taking the truth, clouding it with additions or subtractions, and they end up with a false gospel. And as a result, they, it has no power to save. Now, God may save despite it, but it won't be because of what that church is doing so, or that false church is doing. Where you go, of course, is Scripture. You test what you're told, persuasive or not. And then Paul says, though I'm not there in good physical form, I'm there in spirit. And he says, I'm hoping that you would have good discipline in the stability of your faith in Christ. What I like about that statement is this. Stability in your faith. Now, that is not to say holding on to your salvation. I'm talking about your maturity and your, and your understanding. Maturity and understanding being the stability in your faith. What is that dependent on? Good fortune? Being in the right place at the right time? What determines your stability in Christ? Discipline. What is discipline in the church? Not in the sense of what I said earlier. Not in the sense of correcting each other. That's not so much what he's talking about. He's talking about what you do to yourself. Discipline. What are the disciplines of a believer then? Spiritual disciplines of various kinds. Prayer and fasting, which we never do in the church, it seems, anymore. But prayer and fasting. Study of the Word. As Hebrews tells us, not forsaking the gathering together. Being dis disciplined about your time and giving it to the body. Being in the body, with the body, a part of something. Not just doing it all on your own. Uh, and there's more, right? There's other disciplines of service in the body and other... The point is, it is discipline. It's not natural. It doesn't happen because you will it. It happens because you make it happen in your life, because you make it a priority. That's how you become stable in your faith in Christ. And I think the flip side of that is, to the extent those disciplines are lacking, you're the person tossed to and fro by the waves. You're susceptible to whatever comes along tomorrow. Be it new teaching, be it a new fad in some way, maybe just a distraction outside the church that pulls you completely out of a walk in a faithful walk in your, whatever it is that distracts you. What Paul is saying is, I'm laboring with you as a church. I have your best interests at heart. And one of the things I'm laboring with, with you on is this need to be dis disciplined in your faith so that you would remain sure in it. Colossians 2, 6 through 7. This is where he's going now. He says, So then, just as you receive Christ as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. 
This sets him up now for where he's going next. What he's about to do is juxtapose what does it mean to depend on Christ with what are hollow, empty, deceptive human philosophies. That's the rest of the chapter. What he does in an interesting way is he reverses the order. He starts in, chapter, in verse 8. He says, don't be susceptible to false philosophies. Then he ends with, you should rather depend on Christ. Then he reverses them when he begins to explain them. He starts with saying, what is it to depend on Christ? Then he goes into the philosophies that are false. So what we'll do today as we end is just look at how he described depending on Christ. And then we'll be done for today. So in two weeks, uh, we will get into the fun, what I call the fun stuff of this letter. What is false philosophy in human tradition? If you scan down the rest of the chapter, you're going to see some things that are popular today. All right, Things that people have made more than they should, let's say. And we'll talk about that when we get there. But look at what he says to depend in Christ is. Very simple. Verse 6. Continue in Christ the way you received him. As you received Christ, continue to live in him. What worked at first is always enough. Live in him refers specifically to that new life, to being born again. On the way you were saved, continue to be saved. Paul puts it this way in Galatians. He says, You foolish Galatians in chapter 3, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you're now going to be perfected by the flesh? Paul's saying the same thing to the Galatians that he's saying here in the Colossians. Look, if you believed you were saved on day one because of faith, then why are you considering adding something to that in order to maintain your salvation? If faith was good enough to save you on day one, why is it not good enough on day two? Why is it not good enough on day ten? Why are you susceptible to someone teaching you you needed more? Because if you need more now, then you would have needed it then. In which case, you're not saved at all. Continue as you gained your salvation, which is by faith alone. So he's stating up front, what does it mean to depend on Christ? Add nothing to what it was that you believed in the first place. That he died for your sin, that saves you. From verse 9 to verse 15, it is maybe the most concise doctrinal statement of what it means to be a Christian in Scripture. Concise, but yet full. All the detail. So if you ever make a note as we leave today, make a note. If somebody ever said, well, where in the Bible does it actually say, what does it mean to be a Christian? What do I have to believe? You know, you can say, well, John 3.16. And, you know, yes, that's all true. But if you wanted to expand on that and bring it to its conclusion with all the richness of what it would mean to be in true Christian doctrine, verses 9 through 15 is the doctrinal statement of Christianity. Two weeks from now, we'll study the follow-on in human philosophy. So let's go to prayer as we finish. Dear Father... We close in prayer, giving you thanks and acknowledging, Father, the teaching that took place by your Holy Spirit. Father, the teaching that may have come out of my mouth would have often included error, as is the case with any man. So I pray, Father, that the truth spoken would resonate in the hearts and by that truth they would give you the glory. And the error as it may come out, Father, you would attribute to me and they would forget soon and you would replace it with your truth. Lord, we uh, thank you for the chance to be in your word as always in this way. May Sunday be a day of... uh, rich celebration in your word and in your uh, body of Christ and may it uh, lead to a week as well of uh, witnessing to you wherever we may go. And uh, Father, according to your will, bring us back next week and in the weeks to come to continue our study. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.